0: You're listening to an event from the US Institute of Peace, part of the USIP Podcast Network. For more information about our work around the world, visit usip.org and check us out on social media.
1: Good morning, and welcome back to the Missing Peace Global Symposium on Conflict-Related Sexual Violence. We are in day two, and our first plenary of the day is on survivor centered approaches in research, an open exchange. And we are lucky to have our colleague, Professor Kim Tui Seelinger, who is a part of the International Criminal Court's Office of the Prosecutor. And she is also uh, known as a professor at the Washington University in St. Louis. And I'm going to turn the floor over to you. Thank you very much to the panel. And we look forward to it. Thank you. Good
2: morning, everyone. I'll wait till this is on. I was told this would automatically go on. Can you hear me? No. 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 It's a techno. Ah, thank you. All right. Okay, so this is actually the the plenary on a survivor-centered approach, and we'll have the open exchange in the concurrent following this. We hope those of you who are interested in having a deeper discussion directly with um, survivors and survivor advocates will join us for the concurrent after this. But right now, I am so, so pleased to um, facilitate this conversation this morning. We're going to talk about what it means to take a survivor-centered approach in different aspects of our work. Um, and this is critical because one of the things we've certainly learned since the last Missing Peace meeting was the importance of doing so and as many of you have pointed out we're invoking the need to take a survivor-centered approach in much of our work and policy and practice and research but we still haven't quite figured out exactly what it means and how to do that in a a truly concrete and operational way so we thought um, how wonderful to have the opportunity to learn directly from the experts so this is what this panel is about um, I want to introduce our, our experts, and then we will get started. So from right here is Ms. Nadine Tunazi, who, I'll keep it very brief, but she is a member of Survivors Speak Out, based in the United Kingdom, and she's also one of the survivor champions of the UK government's Preventing Sexual Violence Initiative. Um, Mr. Artemis Akbari is right here, and he is the founder of Afghan LGBTIQ Organization, he also is a founder and one of the hosts of a very unique radio show for Afghan and Iranian LGBTIQ individuals, and his partner in that work is here with us, Ali. Somewhere, so there's Ali. So we can't wait. We hopefully we'll be able to hear the radio show sometime. Um, and then we have Leila Damon, who is um, she was born as um, following sexual violence and rape in, in Bosnia, and she is a member of Forgotten Children of War. And we're very delighted to have her with us. Thanks, Layla. <laughs> Next to Layla is a very dear friend of mine from many years ago, Jane Fleming, who is a huge inspiration to me. She's done refugee protection and asylum work all over the world for twenty three years now and is the co-founder or f- the founder of Life Lamp Boat Ladder, which we'll hear more about soon. Um, she's a human rights lawyer that uh, whose work really embodies survivor-centered approach. And then the guy on the end over there probably needs no introduction at this point, but that's um, Kolbasia Haosu, who is also, like Nadine, um, a key key member of Survivors Speak Out. And like Nadine, also works at Freedom From Torture in the UK on behalf of survivors. And he is also a PSVI survivor champion. They don't look like twins, but in some ways uh, they have a whole lot in common. But um, thanks for joining us, of course, Kolbasia. Okay, we're gonna start with some framing comments from Kobasia. He's going to just give us a quick encapsulation of, of what the conversation will be about, and then we'll start our conversation with the individual experts. Thanks, yes.
3: um Thank you, and good morning, and really lovely to see you all here today. And I think, um, you know, the fact that we came together, I mean, there's two elements. Um, one, one is the evil element, that's the conflict-related sexual violence, and the other part that I call it as a good element is, you know, policies and practices, and support that, in our objective, with the survivors or without the survivors, is for the betterness of, <clears throat> you know, tackling the impact of conflict-related sexual violence, and also creating a better support support system, for you know, for survivors in order for survivors kind of to move on, you know, with their life. And diminishing the impact of conflict-related sexual violence, and that can be, you know, policies. That can be support. That can be the work that we do in our daily, uh, daily life, and you know, daily daily practice. And for it to be really informed, in order really to meet the need of the survivors, whether that in terms of the justice, whether that in terms of, um, you know, the support, um, whether that in terms of you know, the logistic that we, we need or in terms of the research that we want to think to try to understand you know the context that we need to work in in addressing the conflict- related sexual violence initiative require really the integration of survivors within, within the work that we know we do. Because without that we're missing a key ingredient, the most important ingredient, where the expertise and the insight that survivors can bring. In order to inform us to better shape the policy that we need to shape, and that's one element that you know we sitting here, you know in that panel, we want to bring the insight and the expertise that we have in our daily work and in the, in the organization that, that we do. Um, thank you very much.:
2: Thanks for setting us up, Kobasya. All right, so my first question is for Nadine. And I was asking Nadine if she could help identify some of the main myths and misconceptions, or just assumptions that many of us make about survivors that need to be addressed. And then what are the dangers of failing to address those? Thanks, Nadine.
4: Thank you. You can hear me, yeah? OK. I mean, there are a lot of misconceptions. I've sort of um, thought about three that I'm going to try and share with you today. And I think the initial one, the first one I want to highlight with you is the, mis- uh, the misconception that survivors are vulnerable. I come from an organization where, a um, freedom from torture, I used to be a service user, so I benefited from the service of that organization. And from there, when I finished therapy, I moved into the Survival Speak Network. So, you, quite often, we see organization, I think the intention um, are, are quite well-funded, or oh, being overprotective and not allowing survival to engage in certain things or participate in certain things because in coma, survivors are too vulnerable. I think we have a duty of care to ensure that survival participate and engage safely, but what we've seen is that that misconception has not really allowed survival to be empowered. I can speak from my own personal experience. I think that there is a transition where you know you move from that vulnerability stage. And that doesn't mean that survival are not vulnerable, but if we can provide the platform that are safe and allow people to engage, people are able to be supported and and be, you know, strong leader and advocate. So vulnerability has been used um, and um you know I take a really responsibility of my word as an excuse to end the survivor from participating in a certain event. And sometimes we hear people saying that this is too high level or too sensitive. And I think the survivor have the agency to make that decision to whether to participate or not. And if we really believe and facilitate those leadership, we can allow people to engage safely. And then the second uh, misconception is, I think we've heard it a lot, and I'm grateful for all the participants yesterday. I think people mentioned how we are not um, a homogenous. I think I'm saying that right, group. And many survivors have experienced sexual violence differently, and therefore the impact is different. And that's why we need to make sure that when we are talking about the issue of sexual violence, we, you know, I think it was well-highlighted yesterday, context you know, is put into place because region, the cultures are different and I think that to really kill that misconception misconception is to understand how the survival group in a certain region or even for a particular religion background are impacted. As you know, stigma also plays a big role in um, impacting survival of sexual violence and therefore, depending on the region in which you live, survival will experience or, be, or will be impacted. Uh, differently. And I really want to say survival, you know, are not necessarily defined by their experience. There are survival who, you know, apart from, you know, going through the horrific experience, they are mothers, they are fathers, they are are lawyers, they are doctors, and sometimes we forget that. We forget that this is, you know, beyond that there are, you know, normal people who have a big role to play in our society. So I think I mentioned the context. And also, I think it's really important that I also talk about the access to justice. We forget that the meaning of justice means different things for different survivors, and we tend to assume that all survivors want to see the case in court and I think that's the case and if we really have to have a survival centered approach is to make sure we deliver a justice that is survival centered meaning that you know respecting the wishes of the person, do they want an outcome in court or do they just want you know to be rehabilitated or to have reparation to what has happened to them. And I think that is very important. I've, you know, In our work we've been involved in a lot of projects where everybody says survivors need access to justice, but they're trying to define it for survivors. And the last misconception, and really I want to talk about this as well, is that, and I've heard this, grateful we had an opportunity to visit Colombia. and. Um, we met. I think Obasa said it yesterday, 600 survivors, and one actually pointed out that, you know, not all men survivors are homosexual. You know, this is what the survivors said. We assume that just because a male survivor speaks, they are uh, homosexual, and that's you know a misconception. And also, another survivor who is homosexual did say that just because. I'm quoting them, I'm homosexual, doesn't mean that I've enjoyed being raped. And sometimes we tend to forget that, and I think that it's really important when we are talking about a survival-centered approach, you know, we try and kill or, sorry if killing is, is, is the wrong word, but really deal with those misconceptions. Thank you.
2: Thank you, Nadine. Um, it's actually, I think this warning about homogeneity is, uh, is a good one, that's not an assumption we should be making. And I think Artemis will help us clarify one pat- the concerns and issues in one particular uh, group. So maybe Artemis, if you could tell us, for the LGBTIQ community, or the, the individuals with whom you work, do you think that the current legal frameworks are protective enough? Are they inclusive enough? And also, what are some of the unique challenges of the LGBTIQ individuals who, with whom you work, and how can we better address some of those challenges
5: that they have? Uh, good, mo- good morning, everyone. Uh, thank you so much uh, for this question. I think it's, very, it's a very important question because, in my opinion, uh, the current international norms and frameworks um, do not protect LGBTQI people in conflict zones. When we want to uh, make some policy, change, policy changes, we want when we want to protect LGBTQI people in conflict zones, first I think it's very important that we should have the tools, methods, frameworks, uh, mechanisms to protect them. Without them, it's not possible. And I've, I heard this many times that many people told me we have the frameworks, for example, we have R2P principles, we have Geneva Convention that prohibits violence against all civilians, regardless of their sexual orientation and gender identity entities. But in my perspective, it's not enough. Are the current uh, international norms and frameworks LGBTQ inclusive? No, they aren't. Uh, do they address the unique challenges that they face in conflict, related, uh, in, uh, in conflict zones? No, they don't. And are, do they uh, address the intersectionality of the people in different contexts? No, they don't, I think. As a survivor, not as an expert, as a survivor, as uh, as a person who is in contact um, daily with LGBTQI people in Afghanistan in conflict zones, uh, the current international norms and frameworks are inadequate. They, they are not addressing our unique challenges. They are not addressing our, the intersectionality of LGBTQI people in conflict zones, and they are not enough because they cannot protect us. They are not. They even. Does, they even. They don't address the unique challenges that we face. Even at the international level, when we hear about sexual violence, we usually hear about the violence uh, against women and children, sexual violence against uh, women and children, and they don't talk about the sexual violence against LGBTQI people. Because in my perspective, LGBTQI people, because of their uh, gender expression, sex characteristics, or sexual orientation, that they can be easily targeted and be persecuted, or they can be sexually assaulted by, by non-state actors, by, uh, by paramilitary groups, or even the, by the soldiers, by the governments, and in the context of Afghanistan, um, speaking about LGBTQI people is a very big taboo. Speaking about uh, sexual violence is taboo, even for women, and and speaking about sexual violence against LGBTQI people, it's something impossible in Afghanistan. You cannot talk about this issue in Afghanistan, unfortunately, and. And many LGBTQI people following the fall of Afghanistan were targeted by the Taliban they were harassed they were and some of them were sexually assaulted by the Taliban last year we received many requests for help and sixty seven people were sexually assaulted by the Taliban and we are at the moment we are conducting a documentation about the conflict related sexual violence against LGBTQI people and our report will be published um, uh, by the end of next month and i I want you to read it and and there are many terrible stories and narratives that just people, because of their sex characteristics during the conflict, they were targeted and they were sexually assaulted. Not just by the Taliban, by, the, by other non-state actors, by other paramilitary groups, by even by the government, and they cannot talk about their experience, the sexual violence that they experienced with their own families, because they can be tar- they can be killed uh, by their own family members, because it's a shame for uh, for their family that one of their uh, their uh, family members were raped by someone else. So I think it's very important uh, for us to talk about the sexual violence. Uh, Against LGBTQI people in conflict zones because they usually experience unique challenges. They have unique problems, and and also we need a uh, international, a concrete and specific frameworks for that, so that uh, so that it can uh, address these challenges and problems in the uh, in conflict zones. Thank you.
2: Thank you, Artemis. And I think uh, on one of the panels this afternoon, we'll talk about some of the new issues in international criminal law, and Special Advisor Lisa Davis will talk a little bit about gender persecution, which helps address some of the challenges you're you're referring to a little bit. Thank you. Leila, let's continue. Artemis gave us um, some insight about some uh, ways in which family are relevant, actually, in in these situations. Can you share a little bit about the invisibility of children who are born of wartime rape, and just shed some light on that for us. It's something we don't know enough about, and um, we look forward to hearing
6: from you. Yes, definitely. Thank you, um, and thank you all for uh, listening today. Um, so as a child born out of sexual violence, um, I'm, I can talk from my own personal experience of um, how I kind of came to knew my story, and also this kind of support that was there so personally I would call myself and use the term a child born out of sexual violence I wouldn't use a term a victim or a survivor however when we think about children that have been born out of conflict related sexual violence they are a victim and a consequence of the sexual violence that has been perpetrated um, to their mothers and they are an invisible consequence. I think for a really long time children born out of sexual violence the second generation um, that have to live and face the same and very similar issues of trauma to um, their mothers. However, there's a harder task uh, that they face, which is Ultimately, about the childhood development that they could experience growing up, specifically to do with um, themselves and their mothers, but also not having the right the rights that every child should have, which is fundamentally around education, healthcare being recognized by the state, and also being loved, being supported, and those are really key factors in childhood development, but also into the adults that they become later on. We know that every child has the right to be recognised and also we know that children being born out of sexual violence isn't a new topic. We know that there have been children born out of sexual violence after World War Two. We know that they've struggled through their journeys and finding out about themselves and this has been really difficult and I've had the privilege of meeting many of them and they are incredible people. But ultimately ch- children born out of sexual violence is a topic that's being discussed a lot more and has been on the agenda a lot more since I first came out, um, came out with my story only when I was 18. Back then, I felt completely alone, you know, being a a child born out of sexual violence from Bosnia, having grown up in the UK, none of my peer set you know it potentially knew about the conflict you know I didn't have any friends or community in which I could necessarily share that with I had parents adoptive parents that absolutely loved me I had a fantastic education I was supported you know in terms of any health care or anything like that yet I still felt incredibly incredibly alone and I think it wasn't until um, 2017 when I was put in touch by researchers who had been doing research on children born out of sexual violence. And they put me in touch with another child born out of sexual violence uh, in Bosnia. And her name is Aina Jusic and uh, she is the president of the Forgotten Children of War Association. When I first met her and I told her about my story, Finally, I had someone that I, you know I could connect with—a safe space, a safe environment to talk about the ways that I've been feeling about myself, the whether or not I was a bad person because I had been born out of sexual violence and this awful atrocity—and it, it it was a really freeing and opening experience. And ultimately, for me, the things that I needed growing up throughout my teenage years, was support in terms of a community to think that, you know, to know that I wasn't the only one. You know, and I really did feel very, very alone for a very long time. Since then, after, as well as that, I think the one thing that I grew up feeling, um, having been adopted, you felt different. That's, That's, you know, a kind of something I had to come to terms with, but it was shame. Ultimately, I wasn't able to talk to my friends or you know I my family necessarily about the feelings that I had about myself and that shame and that silence I held for a very long time and it wasn't until um, later on where I met a counselor who uh, within the UK was trauma informed and had previously um, worked with uh, victims of sexual violence but within the UK um, framework and I it really helped. Having someone that was trauma-informed, having someone that wasn't my family, you know, someone that was kind of out of that zone And um, because ultimately my family loved me and, you know, they gave me all the support that I needed, but I really needed to work through things myself. That was really what step-changed things. So it was community and and psychological therapy. Those were the two main factors that really supported me in my journey and, ma- and helped me to kind of become the person I am today and to be able to talk about my story in that sense. I think there's been a lot of progress made to a certain extent in terms of raising the profile of children born out of sexual violence, the research that's being done in this area, the work that the Forgotten Children of War Association are doing, and many others. However, I do think there is um, a need to, there is still work to be done on this topic in terms of how we support children born out of sexual violence in the best way possible in their countries, and that insight um, comes from, Uh, comes from their mothers, comes from the children, and again, talking about that survivor-centered approach is making sure that it fits that person. Not everyone's the same, and they will have different needs that need to be met. Thank you.
2: Thank you so much. Um, I'm a little floored by these panelists, frankly, but um, thank you. Jane, I know I've had the opportunity to... Been and in support in some of your work over the last few years, and in your program, you actually have given safe harbor to children born of wartime sexual violence, to LGBTIQ individuals, to women, girls, survivors. Really, it's incredible. Can you tell us how you have how you built this program and how you envision
7: survivor-centered approaches to the work? Uh, good morning, everyone, and it's great to be here. Uh, I definitely feel like I don't belong on this panel and have a bit of an imposter imposter syndrome. But I'm going to comment about our program in relation to some of the comments so far. Um, Because I think that as an international human rights lawyer running a program for survivors, I've worked with survivors for 23 years. And I I think for me, the key piece of advice I would give to others, for myself, for our teams, is. Listening is a thousand times more important than speaking And I've been listening to our panel this morning and just sort of writing down little bullet points for myself In terms of what I think are the key elements of a survivor-centered or a survivor-led approach Um, Not in terms of a label not in terms of a claim that we are survivor-centered But in terms of a practice that gets incorporated and woven into our program hopefully, inshallah, every hour, every moment, every day of our program. I work very closely with Kolbasia, he's a member of our team, and um, I often will simply pick up the phone and call him and consult with him about an issue I'm struggling with, or our team is struggling with, because we don't know the answers, and we don't know how to approach an issue, and so I'll ask, and listening um, becomes the core element. I think the most critical element that we can create for survivors in a survivor-led or survivor-centered approach is safety. Um, Safety and space, space for people to feel safe, and the core essential elements of safety that are very practical and material, shelter, food, um, access to whatever their particular goal is. So when someone comes in to meet me, The first question is not, tell me your history, tell me your trauma history, tell me your story, let me develop a legal case. The first question is, what do you need? And then we try and understand how we can meet that need, whatever it is. We're a holistic program and we're a longitudinal program. So we work across country, across border, across time periods. It's a temporal program. Uh, Going to a point about vulnerability. As a lawyer, I can use vulnerability in a very strategic, tactical way. We all know that. If somebody is vulnerable, you might be able to get them faster resettlement. You might be able to get them shelter. You might be able to get them food. Sure, I would love to advocate that all of my clients are vulnerable so that I can get them tangible results. But I don't use vulnerability to say that someone should be immobilized, that someone is incapable of speaking for themselves, that, someone, that I should be a voice for someone. Never. Individuals who have been forced to leave their countries, who are in flight, who are survivors are very adept at utilizing the concept of vulnerability to their advantage. This is because they're survivors. A survivor knows that they need to claim they're vulnerable in a court in order to get legal redress. A survivor knows that they should not be vulnerable if they want to go to a country that doesn't want vulnerable refugees, and so then they're going to be the strongest person in the room. So vulnerability can be manipulated. And it's not a bad thing. That's a survival strategy, and we recognize that. But we never, we never diminish someone by saying they're vulnerable. We ask people. Vulner, vulnerability relates to risk. And a risk assessment, again, what do you need? What do you need in order to feel safe? What do you need in order to feel that you're on a journey of healing? What do you want from us? And we don't say, here's the menu of things that you can have from us. We do A, B, C, and D. Oh, I'm sorry, you wanted E. If they want E, we create E. We make E because we're accompanying someone on a journey. We're not creating the journey. We're not dictating the journey. We're accompanying someone on their journey. Sometimes we carry. Sometimes we listen. Sometimes we hear. But we're not the architects of that journey. I think language is very important. Artemis is talking about language. We completely lack, in a humanitarian context, appropriate language and narrative for a survivor's journey because we're not listening enough. We're not allowing le- the survivors to speak enough. We're not providing safe space for survivors to be able to speak. So our narrative is completely wrong. Rescue, savior, entitlement, benefit. All of those words should be discarded. We need survivors to be able to create the language, and we need to use that language. And I think we have to learn. I learned from Kolbasi, from I learned from Kim. I had a case one time, and it was a new area of law for me and I didn't know what language to use. And Kim has expertise in this area of law. She's worked in these communities. So I shared my affidavits with Kim, and I said, can you give me feedback? Because I don't think I'm using the right language in this legal brief. And we worked together because she had the experience that I needed. And we do that all the time with survivors. What are the words we should be using? What are the language? How do you want us to articulate this need? How do you want us to articulate this risk? And that becomes the language that we use in the dialogue. I know that I'm taking a lot of time, I'm almost finished. Community. You talk about community, and community being creating safe space for survivors to be able to lead. So if it's one survivor, and we say, oh, you're the leader, that's very difficult. It's scary. They then are sort of us and them, create that dichotomy. But if we create community, we have a running team in our program, and we have 39 survivors on our running team, and they run races. The running team is much more than just races. They communicate at races, they train together, they share their stories together, they rebuild and they heal together. That's not us. That's survivors creating a community that is safe for healing, and that journey becomes part of our survivor-centered and survivor-led approach. And I think identity and control, survivors having control over the journey, survivors having control over how their identity is defined, and us always in every step, every measure, trying to make sure that we're affirming. Why is that so important? Because torture and sexual torture is about removing identity. It's about erasing identity. It's about removing control. Every single thing we do in our work should be about returning control Returning agency, returning that sense of personal power over our survival and our existence. Thank you. Thanks, Shane. I know you truly
2: believe that listening is a thousand times more important than speaking, but I'm always so glad when you do speak. So thanks for that. Um, All right, we're going to leave it to Kolbasia to add his comments um, in light of everything that we've heard and learned. Go ahead, Komasia.
3: Yeah. Yeah, thank um, thank you. I I think that I also been learning. I think um yeah, my, my journey as an advocate and an activist and somebody that you know from um early 2006, seven, decided that you know my past should not define me in the present also should not define me in the um, in the future. And also who I want, if I'm looking in the in the future five, ten years, who I want to see, who's that person that I, you know, I want I wanted to see, and at the end I come to the conclusion that if I can contribute, you know, to the overall, um, you know, direction of how survivors and victims can be seen in a different light, so then whenever I past, I have turned you know, my experience to something more positive. And, you know, sitting here today really listening to every single you know, person in the, um, in the panel make me really believe that you know, within ourselves, um, you know, survivors, um, you know, non-survivors, that together we are the key in really addressing you know the impact of the sexual violence we also key in you know putting the shame back into the uh, to the perpetrators and also we are key into creating the platform you know for survivors um, victims and everybody that is related to that in order for us to feel you know I wouldn't say, you know, proud, but at least you know, accepting our past but then being proud of of our present and 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 our future. And you know, thank you for that.
2: Thank you so much. Um before we turn it over to the audience Q&A, I didn't know if any of you had anything you wanted to comment on from each other. Not to put you on the spot, but this would be
6: the time no? yeah. the only thing that i wanted to comment on um, was around nadine's point around justice and what justice looks like Um having uh met my own birth mother and having a relationship with her now uh, for six years very grateful for that initially you know ultimately looking at survivor-centered approaches and the approach to justice Um she didn't want to go down the legal route, and that's absolutely fine. And and we need to honor and respect those choices. And I think, but what did help and what did benefit her was she, um, Ina and I were able to get her a victim status and some reparations from the government to support her in her day-to-day life financially. And I think just holding onto that point of justice looks very different for different people. And we just need to make sure that that's at the forefront of, um, you know, our approaches and how we communicate and speak to survivors. Thank you.
2: No, that's a great point. And justice is defined differently at different points in time, right? And I think, particularly when you work in a court, the, the timelines don't always sync up, right? The timeline for an investigation or a case may not be the same timeline as an individual survivor has for wanting to disclose. So we have, also have to be mindful of that in the systems that we work in. And um, thanks, Leila. Anything else from you for each other before we turn it over?
4: Thank you. I think I'm very impressed that we have a panel, you know, focusing on the subject on survival-centered approach alone. I think that alone is something that we need to applaud and recognize that is one of the things that we want to be seeing more conversation purely about, you know, talking about what does it look like to have a survival-centered approach and also looking at the panel. You know we're all representing different issues, and I think it's really important that we 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 bear in mind the issue of representation you know just to uh emphasize on your point Thomas, about you know the, how some survivors, you know our uh the l g b t community are invisible, and we have a duty to make sure that nobody is invisible and is not spoken about so I'm really grateful
2: thanks ed uh
5: thank you so much jane uh I wanted uh, to just briefly say about the survivor based approach, how can, how can we adopt it? And I think that one of the main thing that is very important in our work is that the researcher, policymakers, um, service providers should. Uh, be well informed and, uh, and trained about the impact of trauma on individuals, because, uh, because sometimes for us, as a, for, for me personally as a survivor, uh, we, we all have trauma, uh, we survivors have trauma. and Sometimes a single word, a single sentence, sometimes a smell in a particular moment can trigger us. And and it's very important, for example, for a researcher, if they they want to conduct a research and they want to interview a a survivor, they prepare their questions carefully because it can trigger that person in a very close consultation with with psychologists and also they should do some background check to make sure that uh, that that person will not be uh, re-traumatised. And another important thing about the language, uh, I want to say that I think it's very important that the researchers and policymakers, they, they should know properly about the cultural differences, language uh, language differences, sometimes the terminology that Western countries or European people or the people in the United States uses for some particular Things is completely different uh, in that uh, country or in that society. For example, I can say about the LGBTQI people, the terminology that we use is completely different uh, from the terminology that people in the United States that they use, and sometimes it's, some, uh, it's very offensive. I can give you an example. At the beginning of this year, uh, I think it was February, uh, a UN Special Reporter for Afghanistan published a report about the human rights situation in Afghanistan, and, and, and Unintentionally, unintentionally at the end of the report, they used some homophobic, transphobic and offensive terms for LGBTQI people. Of course, it was unintentionally, but but it was very traumatizing, personally for me, and also for many other LGBTQI people. And it's very important that um, in our work, we should have a close uh, relationship with the local uh, organizations, or uh, we should have a... Uh, we should have a depth knowledge about the cultural differences, cultures, uh, and also uh, terminology. I think this point is very important for me because I experienced it. Yes, thank you.
2: Thank you for sharing that, Artemis. All right. Jane, did you want to add something quick? Yeah. Uh,
7: I just want to make one appeal, and maybe it's for the people who are online as well. Um, You know, every survivor-led group or organization that I've... I've encountered or or interacted with is struggling for funding, and every international NGO in the world is maximizing every opportunity to get millions of dollars based on the latest conflict in the world. And if we can't get funding into the hands of small, community-based, grassroots organizations led by survivors, we're never going to achieve our goals that we're talking about on this panel. Thanks,
2: Jane. Very true, and this came up a little bit yesterday, too. I think that's right. Um, OK. We're going to take some questions for the panel. Again, we're going to ask you to keep your questions very concise so that we can get as many in as possible. Um, let's, OK, that's, I'm trying to figure out who hasn't asked a question yet, but I don't quite remember. All, right. All right, Let's start in the back, and then the middle here, and then Madame here, and then right here, too, and then Sophia, thanks. We'll grab the five, and then we'll respond to those. OK? Thanks.
8: Uh, should I stand up?
2: <laughs> OK.
8: Um, uh, my name is Noon Susan Sebid william I'm from South Sudan. I'm a lawyer, and I'm the founder of the South Sudan National Line of Women Lawyers. And one of the activities we do is to ensure that we provide pro bono services so, I am so much impressed with uh, my colleagues. I will call your colleagues, the landed colleagues from L. Smith. So, um, my question is very brief because I also work with survivors of conflict related sexual violence. And uh, in South Sudan, we have the most fragile situation that doesn't allow s- victims to speak because, you know, this question of victims and witness protections which we also don't have the mechanisms. And I personally have an opportunity uh, with the Transitional Justice Working Group to interact with survivors of conflict, sexual violence. They are not able to speak because they don't have any grantee who, how they will be saved, their families. So listening to you was very good, and maybe I'll reach out to you bilaterally, but I want you to maybe explain to the audience by what do you mean by saying we don't need to speak for the survivors? Because in the situation or context of South Sudan, I have to speak for the survivors because they also don't have a guarantee of protections. Thank you.
2: Thank you. The next question, I think, was in the very back there. And please remember to state your name. Thank you.
9: Thank you so much. Um, I am I'm um, a global disability advocate working in Haiti. Um, I understand that a survivor-centered approach requires a shift in power dynamics, centering survivors as experts of their own experiences and needs. Um, I'd like to know, based on your experiences and with a disability lenses, or can the survivor-centered approach ensure that women and girls living with disabilities have the necessary agency to make decisions about their own lives during the recovery and response process. And the last one is, in what ways can a survivor-centered approach effectively address the wide-ranging impact of CRSV on survivors' physical, psychological, social, and economic well-being? Thank you.
2: Thank you for the concise question. Um, It's been noted. And then I think our third question, I think we had said we would come around here actually, in the front here. Thank you again for a brief question. And then we said we would go across to and then Sophia, thanks.
10: Thank you very much. Um, uh, uh, My question is actually,
2: your name, please, Madam.
10: Wait, okay. Thank you very much. I am Hamso Lemin from Nigeria. Yes, my question is actually to the experienced panelist. Where do I start on the issue of the invisible children of the conflict? I am I am a Muslim coming from a very religious society in a context that any child born out of wedlock doesn't belong to anybody but the mother. And then there is a nasty word they said is a bastard. So the mother will not even want to identify her child as born without a father or neither will the child if grown up from childhood because he will be ashamed to be called, to be what he is. And I have registered right now in my hands I have 800 of such children that I registered. When I took about three of them and kept them in my house, people were saying, what are you going to do with children without roots, without bases? They will even spoil the blessings in your family. This is the extent of this. So my little thinking now goes to going to the legislature to seek for a recognition for these children, but then even within the Islamic scholars that I placed this issue, in fact, everybody is just trying to shy away, cutting corners and leaving me alone. In fact, last year I was, went to even Indonesia, the largest Muslim community to table this because they have a Congress of women Muslim scholars. Honestly, I did not get an answer. And then somebody from Thailand just wrote me something. But even then, that's not solved that problem. Please help. We really, we are in dear situation that needs urgent attention. Thank you.
2: Thank you so much. We also had two on this side. Um- Let's, let's finish, We had committed to this side, and then we'll come back around. I see your question and then a few other on this side, if it's okay. I see you, Dr. Nene. Okay, let's come here, and then Sophia, and then we'll answer, and then
11: we'll make time for one more
2: round. Thanks, Bini.
11: Yes, uh, really, uh, my name is Bina Nepram, and I'm the senior policy advisor on indigenous issues at USIP. But before that, for 20 years, uh, we started the Manipur Women Gun Survivors Network and have been working for survivors for almost 20 years. So my, my point is, first, I think really agree with Ms. Fleming when you said, out of all the humanitarian aid which is given to the world, only 2% goes to victims and their families. So there is a dear need, what you said. But my point is in terms of really thankful to each and every one of you at the panel. Your incredible courage, your resilience and your strength has moved us. And thank you for your work. Talking about this... Uh, different survivors' uh, issues, 80% of the world's conflicts now happen in biodiversity hotspots where indigenous people live. And I want to know from this esteemed panelist, where does the sexual violence in conflict of indigenous women, how are being debated, how are they being included in the global platform, number one. Number two, going back to Ms. Fleming again, on um, community-led driven, aspects, we are looking at indigenous techniques and methodologies of peace building, of healing, of reconciliation. In the state of Manipur, where I was born, we established 37 survivor groups. And we use theater, we use weaving, we use uh, livelihood methods, psychosocial healing to be able to turn the lives of our women and our people around. We have done it, and we can do it collectively together, bringing our wisdom and our heads and hearts. Thank you. Thank you. Uh,
3: can I just quickly understand what does biodiversity mean? Because I don't understand what is the terminology. Just
11: it's it's where the world's like biodiversity is areas which are environmental, which are environmentally sensitive areas of the world where in the world of climate change, and you know these are where there are more. In short, places which are beautiful, where there's still mountains, rivers running, where we all need them.
2: <laughs> okay. Thank you. OK, Sofia, the last question right here for this round. And then we'll try to keep things very brief so that we can grab a couple more questions. Thanks, Sofia.
12: Um, as you all know, and we all know, in humanitarian work, I'm um, sorry, I'm Sofia Cardona from UNHCR in Mexico. Um, humanitarian work has many unintended but unfortunate impacts and the worst of them is sexual exploitation and abuse by humanitarian actors, any, any international organization working and their partners. There is, because it's such a scourge, there is mandatory reporting of any SEA that takes place. This is an obligation handed down from the Secretary General. How would you approach a survivor-centered approach with the obligation that humanitarian workers have a duty to report when SEA happens. Victims can be anonymous, but all humanitarian workers, we have a duty to report if it occurs. And I'm always very concerned about how to explain this to survivors in a way that respects them, when I have to explain that even without their names, the incidents have to be reported, so your advice would be most welcome.
2: Thank you. These are incredible questions, and please feel free to respond to any aspect that you like. Yeah, Nadine, go ahead.
3: Can I, can I quickly start with the last one?
2: It's up to Nadine. Huh?
3: Okay, oh, okay. Oh, I was. You let him,
2: to... or no? <laughs> okay.
3: I mean, yeah, I, I, you know, the last point about the reporting, I think it's really important, you know, to to report but also I think you need to understand the context of the reporting are you reporting by reporting are you also creating a, a safety risk for the individual can you um, I, I think the, the one of one of the questions that you know raise raised there by doing so do you have a protective mechanism in place in order to protect you know the individual that you report in the case because if the case happening in in a conflict setting or in, in a setting where you know the perpetrators still there and the perpetrators still have you know the impunity, then what are you going to do? Because that's the question that you need to ask yourself. What are you going to do in order to protect? you know, the survivors that you wanted to report, and do you have the mechanism in place in, in order to do that? So those kind of, you know, the risk assessment that you also you need to take into consideration in terms of the reporting. Yes, the reporting is very important, but it's not to put at the risk, you know, the individual that you know to report in the case. And Thank you.
4: Thanks, Kobasi. Back to you, Nadina. Thank you. I think I'm going to pick up two questions. I'll start with the, the question about the representation of the indigenous com- community. I'm glad you asked that question. Um, so Kobasia and I, as part of our, um, our role as the UK survivors uh, champion for the Preventive Sexual Violence Initiative, we work with the UK government to put a survivor advisory group. And one of the things that we wanted to make sure was to have a representation of all the background And again, because of our experience with uh, our colleague from Colombia, we met with a survivor from the indigenous community from Guatemala. And last week in New York, we were able. She was part of the delegation that came to talk about the issue of the indigenous community from uh, from Guatemala. I have to say, you know, I read. In my life, by indigenous people, but that was the first time in Colombia I actually met someone from the background, and I was very grateful. And really, representation is very important to us, and we're trying to make sure you know we continue to work on that. And on the issue of survivors not being safe to to speak, I, really, I do really understand the challenges. I have to say, I mean, I don't speak in you know in all the event. I still have to make my own assessment about my safety, whether I feel comfortable. And what we try to do in our network, we always you know, ask people whether they are free to engage. And I know in some countries or contexts, speaking can be very challenging. But I think you can really be innovative about the way you represent someone. You can take someone's statement. You can record uh, a, a person and, and hide their faces or even you know, um, hide the voices. I mean, there are so many ways. And in our network, the Survivor Speak Out network, we have survivors who never, who never speak in public. But that doesn't mean they are not contributing. They are happy to write down a statement, and whoever is able to to present a statement can speak on behalf of them. So I think it's about really being creative and see how, what is it that you can do to represent the voices of uh, the survivors who are not safe to speak. Thank you.
5: Thank you, Nadina. Artemis, what about you? Yes, I want to respond to the first question uh, whether um, uh, we should um, speak on behalf of the survivors or not. I think we, in some particular situation it depends on the context and the country the situation but sometimes we can speak but we cannot determine their needs and and, and what they want and what they need it's very important that we should ask them what do you need and uh, i i was a refugee in many countries and also i'm in contact with many refugees in different countries and and one of the main problems that we struggle in many countries is that most of the NGOs and organizations cannot um, assess our needs properly, and they usually determine our needs instead of asking our needs. They, they usually don't ask, "What do you need? What is what do you want?" And, and this is one of the main problems. And also, when we want to speak, uh, I think it's very important that we look at the individual uh with an agency as a, that can be empowered and can be uh, parts involved in decision making uh, in all aspects of decision making actually uh, and uh, and we shouldn't look down on the survivors, that they are vulnerable, and they are not capable of doing anything. And this perception is very common in Afghanistan, unfortunately, and and in many other countries that I've seen. Even in Europe, I've seen it many times, that they look down on refugees and survivors of conflict-related sexual violence, that, oh my God, that person was sexually assaulted, so he's so vulnerable, and he's not able and capable of doing anything. So that's why we assess their needs. And, and this perception, I think, is very wrong. Yes, I agree with you, but some, in some particular cases, we can speak on behalf of them, but we cannot assess their needs. But in Europe, we can speak for ourselves, but sometimes there is no platform. Or Yes, thank you.
2: Thank you, Artemis.
6: Um, I just wanted to address the uh, uh, question around um, children uh, and children that have been um, a result of sexual violence. And it's the situation that you described. It sounds really dire in terms of you know where do I start? Ultimately, it sounds like you have started by supporting them and taking them in, and that is a massive step. But not, I totally understand, not necessarily your responsibility. And there isn't anywhere to be able to support them further you know no one wants to know and it really comes back down to that stigmatization and people just don't know don't want to and don't know how to support i think from a perspective of any kind of guidance that i could give you it would be around understanding a bit more what's going on within the current context and i'd really like to have a chat with you offline and also the same and to see whether or not anything that the association has been doing around the forgotten children of war in bosnia could help in some way whether that toolkits, advice, informed, you know, anything to be able to support you further, that would be fantastic. Thank you.
7: Thank you, Lila. Jane? Uh, I'll try and respond to a couple of questions. On the issue of indigenous communities and the wonderful practices you have of weaving and and theater and other uh, vocational trainings and livelihoods, when I was trying to figure out how to create a leadership council for our program, I went online and I just searched for community-based or grassroots-based-led uh, organizations, and I ended up finding a model in Indonesia that had nothing to do with our topic that we're discussing today, but it was a model that was community-led. So the more that you can publicize or write or communicate about those models, the more we can incorporate those models into our practices. I think that's really essential. We have a running group, we have a writing group, we have a survivor council that leads us in every aspect of our program. Um, So I think that we're learning from communities, not only in the human rights context, but many contexts. On the issue of voice, Um, You know, as lawyers, we're in positions of power and privilege. Absolutely, we use our voice to advocate often in situations of conflict or situations of crisis. And that's different than using our voice in an individual circumstance with an individual client, where we really want them to be able to tell us how to speak, what words to use, how much to disclose, where's privacy, where's confidentiality, what's safe, what's not safe. So we're talking about two different kinds of voice. And both are critical, both are essential, and both require expertise as attorneys. So I by no means meant to say that we should never be a voice for communities at risk or for communities that can't articulate necessarily or disclose experiences of violence. And this is important because we don't always have to. Many countries in a resettlement context will have what are called um, classes of asylum, where an entire country, the DRC for example, if I have a woman who's 20 years old who's single from the Congo, I need to know nothing about her history because there's an assumption that she's at risk in the Congo and she can be resettled to Canada. Don't widely publicize that, but that's a legal argument that we can make because sexual violence is so prevalent in the Congo, and there's many situations like that in the world. So um, certainly we need to be a voice. Um, In terms of the the children and, and the issues that we're talking about, you know, sometimes I think people who are in situations of violence, conflict, right on the front lines are planting the seeds and then bringing to us information at these bigger, wider conferences where we can develop networks and relationships. Those seeds are the first step. And the work, the hard work that you're doing, and advocacy that you're doing are the first step. And those seeds will eventually, over time, grow into something bigger, into a movement. And so um, all I can do is, is say respect and continue to fight. Thank you. Thank you. And I'm getting the
2: signal from Kathleen that we have no more time for further questions. but. Colvess and I wanted to invite you to the concurrent, particularly if you do research and want to have a deeper conversation with many of our survivors um, present. So join us for that concurrent if you're interested. But for right now, please join me in thanking this incredible, incredible panel. Thank
1: you. Uh, We have one more message of the morning. But I do want to acknowledge that was not only a very moving, but very uh, learning-rich panel, so thank you. Her Royal Highness Sophie, the Duchess of Edinburgh, had hoped to be here for these three days. Uh, She sends her regrets, but she has also uh, sent a message. And I think it's appropriate uh, in that survivors are a very key part of her mission. So uh, we're going to turn down the house lights and the very brief. Ma- Just stay right there; it will be showing right in front of you. Okay. Thank
0: you. I'm delighted that your host, the United States Institute of Peace, has invited me to speak to you all at this important Missing Peace Global Symposium. I am sorry that I cannot be there in person although I'm delighted to be able to share this message with you. Sadly, even as I speak today, women, men, boys and girls will be experiencing conflict-related sexual violence in many places around the world, including Ukraine, Myanmar, Sudan, and the DRC. The scale at which this so-called weapon of war continues to be used remains formidable, effective in destroying lives, livelihoods, and tearing families apart around the world, despite the many collective efforts to end it. The devastating and lasting impact of CRSV is felt across whole communities, as well as by the individuals themselves who have to contend with immeasurable, long-lasting physical and psychological trauma. And while survivors and their children born of sexual violence in conflict face terrible stigma and rejection, often struggling to get the services they need to help them rebuild their lives, the vast majority of perpetrators go unpunished and remain free to carry out more acts of atrocity. However, I remain truly hopeful that we can bring about change and I am committed to preventing and responding to this horrific crime and to supporting the wider Women, Peace and Security agenda. Part of this commitment is my support for the UK's Preventing Sexual Violence in Conflict Initiative or PSVI Launched over 10 years ago, and with survivors at the heart of it, the initiative recognises what you are focusing on today, the role that different stakeholders have to play in order to end sexual violence in conflict. Governments, multilaterals, academics, NGOs, grassroots civil society organisations, and importantly, survivors, need to cooperate and collaborate if we're really going to stop this crime and ensure survivors receive the holistic care they need. And we must work together to create the enabling environment for progress, promoting and protecting women peacebuilders and decision makers, championing male allies and engaging with spoilers. I'm privileged to have met incredible and inspiring survivors, including children born of sexual violence in conflict, as well as those that work with them, like the remarkable Nobel laureate, Dr. Dennis McQuege. I am continually in awe at how these extraordinary people turn the most awful of experiences into the most powerful advocacy tool, directly informing the policy and programming of governments, multilaterals like the UN and non-governmental organizations. It is on this basis that I'm so pleased to learn that the Missing Peace Global Symposium will review the barriers to supporting and protecting survivors the significance peacekeeping and transitional justice plays in allowing society to rebuild, and in particular, learning from survivors to ensure that appropriate holistic support is provided for these women, men, boys and girls. I wish you all the very best in your discussions today and look forward to how you turn the research you have into practice, the practice that is needed by so many. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this event.